0: So Let us listen to the holy gospel, peace teach all. some days and it was noticed that he was in the house and straight away many were gathered together insomuch so much that there is no room to receive them no not so much as about the door and he preached the word to them and they came unto him bringing one sick of the palsy who was born a four men And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts said, Why does this man speak blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why do you reason these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the sick man of the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go into your house. And immediately he rose and took up the bed, and he went forth before them all. Insomuch so much they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this before. I am the door, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. He shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes not but to, but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hiring flees because he is a hireling and cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am, and they are known by mine. As the father knows me even so i know the father and i lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep that i have which are not of this fold those i must also bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one flock.
1: and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please say Today we hear again an extraordinary account of the healing of a paralytic from the Gospel of St. Mark. You're probably aware that it is only in Great Lent that readings from the Gospel of Mark are primarily used. It's only in Great Lent. And as you know, the Gospel of Mark is very condensed. It's very concise. It is about half the length of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, it is about two thirds the length of the Gospel of St. John. And straight away, the focus of the Gospel of Mark seems to be that of the healings of Christ, the healings of Christ and its connection with repentance. It seems odd because Luke was the physician, that Mark seems to zero in on the healings of Christ and their connection to repentance. And that's perhaps why the Church points Gospels from Mark to be read during the course of Great Lent. We have this extraordinary, unbelievable miracle, this healing performed by Christ in the very early stages of His Galilean ministry in Capernaum. We have what makes this event unforgettable are some of the details of this event. We have the crowds that were packed into the house, and even outside of the house, so that nobody could even move to be there to hear the teachings of the Master. You had the four men who were so dedicated and determined to carry this paralytic on his bed through the streets of Capernaum, and then when they couldn't get in, they managed to get him up on top of a roof, pull apart a section of the roof and lower him down to place him at the feet of Christ. We have the response that Christ gives to the paralytic, which is unique, I think is pretty much unique, among all the hymns that Christ performed throughout the Gospels. He addresses directly the man's sins in connection with his Paralysis. More times than not, when Christ heals somebody in the Gospels, he oftentimes says, go your way, your faith is may be well. Uh, go present yourself to the priests according to the law of Moses. But in this case, he connects the man's sins with his paralysis. And of course, lastly, we have the reaction by some of the scribes who are sitting in the audience, who are sitting in the house. And how Christ proved his divinity by turning their own objections against him against them, by turning their objections against him against themselves. He perceived their thoughts, they didn't utter them out loud. He read their thoughts and he knew what their objections were. And he says to them, as you have just heard, he said, Which is easier to say? My son, your sins are forgiven you, or rise, take up your bed and go home but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and go home. That's exactly what happened. Now, I know it's sometimes fantastical to think about these men getting up on the roof of the house and pulling it apart and lowering this man down before the feet of Christ. It might be helpful to remember that most of the structures and homes in the Middle East, in the Holy Land, not that I've been there, but I have read, and some have told me, that most of the structures and homes in the, in the Holy Land all have flat roofs. They don't have to worry about watershed and snow uh, snow shedding off our roofs like we do in New England. It doesn't rain here very much. So all of their roofs pretty much are flat. Most of the roofs are constructed you know by a series of timbers, heavy timbers, then overlaid by brushwood, kind of like thatching in England, and then on top of that they put dirt and they compressed it. A lot of grass would be grow up there on the roof of the house. Outside of the house, along an outside wall, there was oftentimes a staircase that connected the roof down to the street. So you don't have to go all the way down through the house to get out onto the street. It's kind of like When you see those multi-story apartment houses that we have, where they're required to have fire escapes on the outside of the building, I don't think that's what these staircases were utilized for, or why they were were put there. But in the case, it's very similar. They could get from the roof right down to the street. So this is what we've got. So it wouldn't be that hard for these four men to get the paralytic in his bed up that staircase and onto the roof and begin to start pulling it apart to lower him down to second before Christ. The roof of these homes in the Middle East and the Holy Land oftentimes are also an extra living space. They could go up there and use it like a patio outside. The sky was above them. They often would stay there in the cool of the night. They'd often have sleep up on the roof in the cool of the night.
0: And in the Old Testament and the
1: Gospels, the roof of the house is oftentimes referred to as a place of prayer. It is a place where you can go away from public observation, you have a clear sky above you, and you have a clear view of the horizon, hopefully as you face yourself towards Jerusalem, where every good Jew should face when he prays. It's also what we should do. If our churches are oriented correctly, if they're built correctly, they should always face east, to Jerusalem. That's where we direct our prayers. So, this is so that it may not be so fantastic to think about these men accomplishing this act to set this man before Christ. You can also look at this allegorically, in addition to what took place according to the Gospel according to Mark. And, and that's certainly valid, that's certainly good. Some people see the four men who bear the paralytic on his bed as the four evangelists. They carry us in our paralysis up onto the roof and lower us down by the cords of the four Gospels to set us before the Redeemer and Maker of us all. They carry us to salvation. They carry us to the redemption of Christ. They carry us to His healing and His renewal and regeneration. these details. This event is pivotal. It is pivotal, especially for Orthodox Christians. Not only in this event do we see again Christ's two natures, fully human and fully divine, but we also see clearly the two natures of man. The two natures of man. Christ heals the whole person the whole person, body and soul, flesh and spirit, the totality of this person set before you. If we try to artificially separate and dichotomize these two things, flesh and spirit, matter and spirit, we basically fall back again into a dualistic cosmology of the Greco-Roman world and even the the fatalism of the Greco-Roman pagan worldview. Dualistic because of why? Because there was matter, there was spirit, and they didn't connect. They didn't didn't, um, interface at all. Except perhaps when the gods wanted to amuse themselves and interfered in human affairs, according to Greek and Roman mythology. Fatalism in the sense that there was no free will in the Greco-Roman philosophy or worldview. There was no free will. So we do and we are what we are destined to be according to the gods. Christianity, and even Judaism, is very quick to respond to that. Very early on, Christianity responds to this pagan worldview. In Genesis... The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters at the creation of the world. In Genesis 2, God formed man of the dust of the earth. He breathed, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Man became a living being. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Perhaps this is why the church sets for us to read Genesis Proverbs in the course of Great Lent to remind us to recall us to inspire us to go back to the origins of our formation read from Proverbs to help us choose that which is good to choose what is good with that which is destructive which takes away life even in Judaism I have a theory I think it's more than a theory I am convinced that Western cosmology, the understanding of the world and the universe, still has traces of this dualism. Still has traces. We still have this idea in the West that there is matter, there is spirit. There is earth, there is heaven. Where there is points of tangency, then the spirit must override, it must overrule, it must cancel that which is physical. That is why Roman Catholic priests cannot marry. That is why they insist upon transubstantiation, not consubstantiation when it comes to the mystical supper. Even in Judaism, I would say there are still traces of a dualistic mentality. The righteousness of God was external to the Jew. We were all called to uh, live up to and acquire the righteousness of God, but it was contained in the law. It was fulfilled by keeping the law. But it is still external to man. It is only in Christianity that this now becomes internalized. It is to be written on the tablets of the heart, not on tablets of stone strived upon and engraved upon our minds and in our hearts, not outside in the body of laws. The purpose and the goal of Christianity is not just the atonement of sins. The purpose and the goal of Christianity is theosis, being divinized by the grace and the mercy and the indwelling of the living God, The sanctity of life and of all creation is predicated upon two fundamental things, two fundamental truths. The real and bodily incarnation of the Word of God and the real and bodily resurrection of the Word of God. Two things that are concrete realities that connect us to the humanity of Christ very, very essential and important things. This is why we have in the supplemental readings for this morning, the second one would have also have been from Hebrews if I had not cut Chris off, and from the Gospel of John, where it underscores and it emphasizes the importance of this truth of the world, of creation, and of us, and also the importance and the emphasis we should give to the saints who defended this truth, like St. Gregory Palamas, all those who fought against the heresies that would distort and dilute the Christian truth. This is where St. Gregory Palamas comes into the picture. St. Gregory Palamas carries forward Everything we celebrated last Sunday was the Sunday of Orthodoxy. The Sunday of Orthodoxy was the triumph of Orthodoxy. It was in the 8th century, the last great ecumenical council of all the Christological controversies that plagued the church for seven centuries. And of course, as you know, it defended the uh, place and the purpose of icons in the worship of the church. St. Gregory Palamas carries the sword. So, that essentially what is true of the holy icons is also true of us. Matter can be coincidental with the spiritual. Matter and the spirit can be coincidental, coterminous. Here we have Christian cosmology intersecting Christian anthropology. Christian anthropology being the right understanding of the nature of man, the right understanding. St. Gregory was a pivotal and incredible person. He lived in the 13th century. So this is about 500 years after the 7th Ecumenical council in Nicaea defending the holy icons. It was about 100 years after the great schism between East and West. So Saint Gregory is in the 13th century. He had a very privileged youth, very privileged childhood. His father was an eminent counselor, advisor to the last great Byzantine emperor, Andronicus, Andronicus uh, Poli, Poliolegos, and Andronicus Poliolegos, the last great Byzantine emperor. I think I read somewhere that Saint Gregory's father died when he was at an early age, but Saint Gregory continued to be raised, and and tutored, educated, within the courtyards of the Byzantine Emperor. He had the best of everything, he had the best of everything, and of course it was expected that he would grow up and take his father's place as an advisor to the the Emperor, but reminiscent of Moses, Pharaoh, Moses would go up in Pharaoh's house, but ultimately decided to leave and be with his people. St. Gregory left the court guards the palaces of the emperor, Andronicus, and he went to go be a monk on Mount Athos, a simple, humble monk. And there he focused upon the prayer of heart, stillness, silence. Uh, again, the prayer of the heart. Uh, those disciplines and those arts of prayer that revolve around the use of the Jesus Prayer, simple, basic prayer. And it is through that, this stillness and this discipline of life, this, the use of the Jesus Prayer, the prayer of the heart, that we can once again have union and communion with God. An intimate and immediate experience of the divine in our lives. At some, of course, Gregory, St. Gregory gets ordained to the diaconate to the priesthood to the Episcopacy, he was made Bishop of Thessalonica, Sol- Sol- and eventually Archbishop of Thessalonica. But somewhere in the course of these events, a character appears on the screen named Bailam, Bailam the Calabrian, Bailam the Philosopher. He was Greek and Italian, of a mixed background. Uh, came to Athens from Italy, and he, there he received the chair in the University of Athens in philosophy. He was a Christian, a Catholic Christian, but he comes to Athens, and he hears about the monks on Mount Athos and the practice of, it's called hesychasm. this life and this rule of silence, stillness, and seeking the direct experience and intimate experience of God that transforms us, and by long would have none of that. I'm not quite sure how Balaam thought he was in a position to comment or attack the Hezikast on Mount Athens, but he did. He later he launched an attack into the monks, assuming they were simple and they were they were uh, unsophisticated, launched an attack arguing how it is impossible to have a direct and intimate knowledge of God because God is unapproachable, God is unattainable, God is uncircumscribed. We cannot possibly know God except through academic endeavor, philosophical sciences. This is the seeds. this is the beginning of rationalism and scholasticism, which I don't think the West has ever fully recovered from. Scholasticism, the emphasis upon academic, um, what, exercise academic efforts in order to know God. Saint Gregory was the one picked to defend the hesychasts and the spiritual life from the attacks of Balaam. The, the, the book, the treatise, is called the Triads. So this was a written debate between Balaam and Saint Gregory Palamas. But in this debate, Saint Gregory is responsible for and is known for the very astute distinction between God's essence and God's energies. No, we cannot know God in His essence. We cannot see or even apprehend God in His essence, but we can feel, perceive, be touched, and be changed by His energies, which do reach us, surround us, we can, a, a, can take, we can take into us. It is the fine but essential distinction between the sun. If you try to look at it, you'll be blinded. The sun and sunlight. We can see sunlight. We can feel sunlight. We can be warmed by the sunlight. We can be canned by the sunlight. Our gardens grow because of sunlight. We can't see the air, but we see the effects of the wind on the water, on the sheaves of wheat. We see it. We know it's there. We can't see it. So St. Gregor is responsible for pointing out this essential distinction between God's essence and God's energies. Ultimately, Barlaam was condemned, and he returned to Italy, where I think I've heard he was actually consecrated the bishop in the Latin church. St. Gregory was upheld by several synods as his perspective and his teachings being orthodox. They affirmed it as being true to the Orthodox. Why is this important? Why is this important to us? Very simply, it's like what St. Paul tried to say to the Corinthians, who doubted the reality of the resurrection. And I would add to this: what would be the reality of the incarnation? What would be the reality of us because of Christ shared our humanity? A real, direct, and intimate connection with Christ. Paul said to them if you uh, you doubt the resurrection, if you doubt all these things, then you are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. There is still a gap, a gulf between us and God. We're still paralytics. We are still uh, in bondage to our sins and our passions. And there is no hope or help for you. That means we're wasting our time here. That means that of all men, St. Paul said, we are to be most pitied because we've wasted so much time and hope on something that cannot be. And the other reason why this is important is that we are still surrounded. The Orthodox Church and the Orthodox Christians are still pretty much surrounded by many Christian affiliations who deny, who reject the spiritual reality of the mysteries. Sacraments, if you prefer, the ways in which God can tangibly touch us, change us, enter into us. They reject those things. We were basically outnumbered. But this is, in fact, the truth. If God really became man, if Christ was really resurrected, if we really have a direct connection to God through Christ, then we are both human and divine by God's grace. So this Sunday, my brothers and sisters, when we remember and commemorate St. Gregory Palamas, let us rejoice, let us tremble also, that we worship a God who not only formed us, created us, cares for us, sanctifies us, redeems us, but he wants to make his home with us. He wants to make his home with us, he wants us to be his tabernacles. He wants us to be his living icons. We are to be images of the invisible God to the world. You wanna know why the priest senses the faithful in the services? It's because Christians are visible icons of the invisible God. If we live up to the potential that Christ has called us to be,
0: we are to
1: be his people. We are to be his children. We are to be his royal priesthood. We are to be his nation. We, like St. Gregory, are to be his saints, his ambassadors in the world. Like St. Gregory Palamas, let us live the faith. Let us proclaim the faith. Let us be transformed and transfigured by the faith. Let us defend the faith.